Welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're putting a spotlight on the state that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We invite interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Listen in so you can know and better understand what's happening here in California, get more involved, and get inspired to break your own ground. For this month's segment of Policy in a Pint, we're talking about the new gas tax that kicked in on November 1st. The price of gas went up 12 cents per gallon, and you'll have to pay a new registration fee, up to $175 more. The gas tax increase is meant to raise $52 billion over a decade, so Caltrans can tackle ca- transportation projects like repairing roads and improving traffic congestion. But will that money be spent wisely? Governor Jerry Brown fought hard to get the gas tax passed last April, but many of the state's Republican lawmakers are skeptical that the gas tax is the best way to handle road repairs. And now, they're actively working to repeal it on the 2018 election ballot. That leaves it up to voters to decide whether the gas tax should stay or go. This is definitely wonky and complicated, but it affects everyone who drives, bikes, and uses public transit in California, which is pretty much everybody. We're at Station 1, the second floor of the old firehouse in West Sacramento. Join us and listen as we discuss the gas tax, what it is, where the money goes, and the pros and cons of it, as well as how it affects you as a driver, taxpayer, and maybe even a voter next November. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization here in Sacramento, and we're also a nonpartisan nonprofit 501c3. And our goal is to highlight the cool, innovative things happening around California and the groundbreakers who are doing these innovative things uh, and inviting them to come and talk in front of a live audience uh, about what they're doing and then also record the events so there's a wider audience around the state who can hear them. Uh, Before we go into our topic of this evening, I want to just mention a couple of upcoming events for November that we're doing. Uh, On, I'm sorry, November 15th, we're already in November. We're doing a uh, one of our monthly Food for Thought series on the future of farming. Briefly, Food for Thought is about this farm to fork capital. discussion that we have in Sacramento. Who are the people behind Farm to Fort? Who are the innovators in food and wine and beer and ag? So this is actually the fifth one that we have. And it is about the future of farming. Two people who are uh, doing innovative things to get farmers uh, currently working and the future farmers of uh, California uh, on their feet and innovative ways to do that. Also, on November 30th, we're doing another Future of Uh, talk about downtown Sacramento at the Crocker Museum um, in the Friedman Court, which is a lovely place to talk about downtown Sacramento, basically because the Golden One Arena opened up a year ago, uh, I think a little more than one year, what what does that mean uh, around the neighborhood around it and also with the rail yards and the city now has its eyes on revitalizing the the riverfront and uh, changing up old Sacramento. So what is going to happen going forward with those neighborhoods? What does it mean? Uh, how are we involved? So that'll be those will be two really interesting events, November 15th and November 30th. This event is one of our, I always like to label things with a catchy, hopefully, title, Policy in a Pint. And the the topic, the topics that we do for these policy and appoint issues are on politics and policy. The goal is to take a wonky issue, so to speak, something that 
could be a 60-page document, like a Senate bill that has a lot of legalese or minutia, and make it relevant and relatable to you and me because we're voters, we're taxpayers, we're residents, and what comes out of the Capitol affects us uh, in many ways. So for this one, the gas tax, obviously, it affects everyone in the state uh, with a car or a bike or any way of getting around the state. And I think like many people, I remembered about the gas tax conversation going on in April when Jerry Brown was, was talking about it. And I knew it got passed and then I totally forgot about it until last two weeks ago. And then I realized, oh, that's right, the gas tax starts November 1st. And then I was reading about the stories about um, Republican legislators, legislators and saying, we want to start a repeal. And um, I read articles about how people are not very happy about the gas tax, and um, it may hit them. And I just thought, this sounds like it is not a done deal in terms of there's an election year coming up and this this talk that we're having tonight may be one of many uh, so we're probably gonna be hearing uh, more about the gas tax than just that it started today so in many ways i think we're going to be talking about transportation gas and uh, and transit, but I think we're also going to be talking about the election year 2018, um, whether this discussion over the gas tax turns into a, a fight, and whether we will see it uh, a year from now and, and a few days on the ballot, um, and what we will do as voters uh, if there is a, a question about repealing it or not. So I think it's a very interesting discussion, and. Um, I think it's a fitting venue where we're having it here in West Sacramento uh, at the Studio One, which is right by the I Street Bridge that connects West Sacramento to downtown Sacramento. The bridge there is going to be repaired. And for podcast listeners, you may hear some train noise. We're by the train tracks, but hopefully not too much. So before we begin, I always like to thank uh, the people who helped make this event possible. So first up, uh, Darar Zawaya, who owns Station One, uh, thanks very much for uh, giving us a space. And Sandeep Dahal, who manages Station One, has been very helpful. Also, I want to thank people who helped me get the panelist here uh, this evening, Melissa Figueroa of CalSTA, I think is that the way to say the agency, Stephen McViglio of Forza Communications, Mike Madrid of Grassroots Lab, David Wolf of The House. Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Foundation. I also want to give a special thanks to um, one of my board members, Scott Eggert, who was here checking us in, but he's ill, so he had to go home. Last but not least, thank you, audience, for coming, especially at Game 7 of World Series, and of course, to the panelists, too. I very much appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us about this. I don't introduce the panelists. I have you all introduce yourselves because you know yourselves best. So obviously besides your name and your current role in organization, I always think it's good to ask a, a personal question so we get to know a little bit about you and uh, something that's thematic with this topic. I figured um, a road trip. I'm always looking for good places to go and what are some good road trips in California. And since we're going to be talking a lot about roads this evening, I wanted to ask what's your favorite road trip, whether it's a day trip or a weekend trip, East, west, north, uh, south, John, across the state. Uh, where do you, where do you like to, you know, go to? So let me start with a gentleman gentleman on my left. Thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Quigley. I'm the executive director with the California Alliance for Jobs. Uh, the Alliance for Jobs is a labor management partnership. We represent the uh, employers and the union employees who build and maintain our state's infrastructure. 
And uh, our mission is to go out and advocate for responsible investments in our state's transportation, water, rail, and other forms of infrastructure uh, that will ultimately improve the quality of life of Californians and uh, and support our economy and uh, <clears throat> excuse me in uh, in ways that help facilitate growth and uh, jobs. And uh, for me, I like to drive along the coast, especially the North Coast. Some people call it the Lost Coast. I think it's one of the best coasts in California. Uh, you know, heading up towards a uh, you know, Eureka, Arcadia, that area, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure up there uh, that needs to be highly maintained, but it's also a very beautiful part and uh, one of the special places in California. I'm Katie Grimes. I am a political journalist and uh, I am here in my capacity tonight as the president of the Sacramento Taxpayers Association. Um, the two meld quite nicely together. Um, I am an uh, investigative journalist. I cover the state capitol. Um, I'm a credentialed reporter also, so I get to be inside where the sausage is made. Um, and I also cover uh, pretty extensively our state agencies and what goes on inside of those, the budgets, the policy issues, things like that. So um, that's probably largely why I'm here. Um, as for road trips, um, probably one of my favorites is one that my husband and I just did this last weekend, Highway 101 all the way down to the Central Coast and deep into the Santa Ynez Valley. Probably one of my favorite areas. It's like a, the Sideways movie. <laughs> oh, we, should, we should take a little stop here, right, Caleb? Yeah. <laughs> the train. Okay, yes, that's going to be very noticeable, but... I do like the sound of trains. All right, so let us know when it's ready to. Okay. Brian. Sure, well, good, good evening. Uh, I'm Brian Annis. I'm uh, Governor Brown's uh, undersecretary at the State Transportation Agency. Uh, you mentioned uh, CALSTA, so it's California State Transportation Agency. We're actually a newly formed agency. Uh, we were. Uh, uh, formed as part of the government reorganization in 2013. Uh, before that, there was a, a broader agency that in, included uh, housing, business, and, and some other departments of government, but what we focus on now is just transportation. And our largest department is the uh, California Department of Cal uh, Transportation, or Caltrans, but we also have the California Highway Patrol and the Department of Motor Vehicles in our, in our agency. Um, favorite uh, uh, places to go and travel. I, uh, I'm i a native Sacramentan, and the, the first thing that came to mind was, hey, you know, there's a lot of great things here, and you don't need to leave town to, to have a, t a great time in Sacramento. I thought of the American River Parkway, which is one of my favorites. Uh, but of course, my, my second was also the Central Coast. I was going to mention, aside from driving, I recently took the Amtrak uh, along the Central Coast, and that's a great way to have a little tour through Vandenberg Air Force Base, and you get to see some of the missile launch sites that you can only see by train because those aren't visible if you're on Highway 101, but if you ever get a chance to, to take the train and do Amtrak, you get a great uh, tour of uh, space history going along the, the coast there behind Vandenberg. That's good to know. I, I, I didn't even realize about that. All right, so Amtrak. So, uh, this is where the handouts come in handy, and hopefully you can see a little bit of it. Um, I wanted to use those because I'm, my first question is going to uh, 
go to Brian and explain, if you can, in layman's terms, um, what what the gas tax is. We're going to use a few acronyms here. Um, the first one is SB1, which means Senate Bill 1. For many of you in the Capitol, you know that's a Senate bill. This one is uh, also known officially as the uh, Road Repair and Accountability Act of 2017. So, Brian, I wanted you to just explain, you know, briefly, if you could, or broad brushstrokes, what SB1 is designed to do and Included in that, those new taxes and fees that we all keep hearing about, um, what will, where will they go, you know, when they kick in? So just uh, the broad brushstrokes of SB1 and the gas tax in there. Sure. Well, uh, Senate Bill 1 is, uh, my view, really a necessary transportation funding package. Uh, funding roads, keeping bridges in a state of good repair, uh, funding some congestion relief projects so people can get back home after work a little easier. All these things are fairly fundamental uh, responsibilities of government. Uh, with SB1, there's an ability to see these assets start to improve. We have been on a bit of a downslide because uh, the gas tax has not been raised in a generation. And uh, with SB1, uh, there's measurable improvements that are going to be made, and in 10 years, what the people should enjoy is much smoother roads, uh, 500 additional bridges repaired, and hopefully, in many cases, some shorter commutes, uh, depending on how you get to work every day. Uh, the one thing I wanted, if I could look back a bit, there's been several of the articles recently that have focused on 20, 26 other states also raising gas tax in, in recent years. But uh, what took a bit of a historical view, because we're actually nearing the 100th anniversary of the gas tax in California. It was uh, 1923 the, the gas tax first took effect. It was two cents a gallon. Uh, the governor was uh, Friend Richardson, no, no relation to our host. Uh, it, uh, it stated that uh, two cents a gallon uh, from uh, 1923 to 1927 when it was raised uh, 50% to uh, three cents a gallon by the next governor, uh, C.C. Young, uh, both Republicans. Uh, that stayed fairly current then at that level through uh, World War II and the Depression, uh, but uh, with uh, Governor Earl Warren and the booming economy and the need to expand our transportation system after World War II, uh, that rate went up uh, from three cents to 4.5 cents under Governor Warren, and then toward the end of his administration went up another uh, cent and a half to six cents uh, a gallon in uh, 1953. Uh, Governor Pat Brown raised another cent in 1963 to seven cents. Uh, governor Reagan, when he was governor in the early 70s, he didn't raise the, the gas excise tax, but he directed some sales tax money on all goods to local governments for, for transit uh, upgrades and uh, backfilled the state, the general uh, spending of the state, with a uh, sales tax on gas. So that, that one goes back to 1972 and Governor Reagan. Our current governor, when he was governor the first uh, couple times in uh, 1983, uh, uh, approved a two cent increase to nine cents. And finally, our, our last bump up before uh, the current one was uh, Governor Duke Majin in 1990 uh, with a measure that went to voters. It was raised uh, from nine cents to 18 cents. So there's a lot of moving around, but I wanted to, to cite that history just to show that uh, 
the gas tax has been a historic funding source. Uh, back in the World War II, uh, post-World War II greatest generation period, again, it, it had been uh, uh, six cents, which uh, if you adjust for inflation, comes out to about 70 cents uh, today. So uh, it's something that historically you have to adjust periodically every 10 or 15 years or it loses value and, and you can't keep up. So uh, the, the re, uh, uh, increase that went into effect uh, today uh, was one of those uh, increases that we need to see every, again, every 10 or 15 years to be able to keep up and keep the roads repaired and make some strategic investments. And then this is the first because there's other parts of it that start kicking in in January, correct? Uh, there's a, a fee. And then I, I just remember there's something in June about a, uh, uh, a voter, maybe you can explain it, something where we're going to be looking at the ballot on something re regarding to SB1. So what are the next components that kick in briefly after today? Sure. Well, and... and this was a package that was put together over a couple years with the legislature. So one of the components is a, a fee you'll pay when you pay your car registration. And this was a way to get some equity based on income into this equation. So there's a fee that's based on the value of your car. Uh, most cars in the state, uh, after they depreciate a couple years, fall into this, uh, this category where they'd pay either $25 or $50 a year. If you go out and buy a fancy new car over 60000 it tops out at $175. And then if you hold that same car for a couple of years, your depreciation schedule probably bumps it down again. Is that a separate fee from the current registration fee that we pay that is at the DMV? Correct, okay. correct. Also in this idea of fairness and working with the multiple stakeholders, there was a thought that people that drive all electric, battery electric vehicles should also pay because of course they don't fill up at the pump. So come 2020, there's a $100 fee that electric vehicle drivers will pay. Also with the, the trucking uh, industry, uh, they were a supporter of this, so the roads and highways can, can be improved for, for their use. Uh, they, uh, instead of looking at a vehicle fee for those large commercial trucks, uh, they preferred the, the diesel tax, and that's a little easier for them to recover from their customers. So uh, there's also a, a, a diesel uh, increase that includes a sales tax increase, and again, uh, that's something primarily that the truckers will, will pay. So speaking of uh, trucking industry and industry in general, my next question is for Michael. I find it interesting that usually businesses don't like taxes, uh, but a lot of the business trade groups, Chamber of Commerce is lined up behind uh, SB1. And I wanted to, you to explain why you like it, uh, how it will benefit businesses um, in a, in a, because it's, it seems like in California there's so much talk about how taxes like this could drive away businesses and people. So your why do you like SB1? Well, I, I think that you got to look at it. There's two core elements to SB1. One is the fact that transportation supports the economy, supports jobs. Our transportation network is the artery which our goods and services flow from from uh, the, our businesses to the customers and back. So a, a transportation network that's well-funded, well-maintained, is actually a structural efficiency for the economy that benefits all sectors, not just the construction industry, which I represent, but also tourism. It, it benefits advanced manufacturing. It benefits healthcare. There is many faceted, uh, faceted elements of the uh, transportation investment that supports jobs 
And uh, one of the things of the Fix Our Roads Coalition, which is a, a coalition of over 200 organizations, business groups, uh, local governments, city council members, uh, you can check out our website at fixcaroads.com. Uh, that organization, that coalition, is really supportive of this because it transportation does have so many uh, elements to it that impacts people's lives on a daily basis. You know, as everyone who got here today used the transportation network to get here. So it, we, we the, probably the only two services that most of us used in our daily basis are our water and transportation. Those are both infrastructure. Every time you flush a toilet, take a shower, you know, hit the tap to get a glass of water. Um, if people don't think about it, they sort of take it for granted, but there's a lot of people who are working behind the scenes to make that a reliable and stable network. And just the same way that your transportation infrastructure uh, should be structured that way, we need to make sure that is a reliable and stable network and that's efficient both for goods and services and for the individual motorists as they go about their daily lives. So that's, that's one of the big reasons why you saw a lot of uh, business groups and, and chambers of commerce and others uh, take a stand in favor of SB1 is because of the, the benefit to the greater economy uh, and, and the greater motorists. The other reason is the accountability measures. And that is something I think that uh, you know, Katie and I will uh, end up agreeing on is that uh, as part of SB1 is there are strong protections for the taxpayer. And that will be through a new constitutional amendment that you alluded to will be up on the June of 2018 ballot, ACA 5. And that will create a voter approved lockbox, a lockbox that cannot be broken by the legislature. It will be a new state constitutional amendment that will protect and dedicate this money exclusively towards transportation. And that's something that's very important to the taxpayers, that they're getting their value back, that this money is not being diverted. Uh, this money is not being used for for non-transportation purposes. It is going directly as a, as to the intended purposes. And that is something that was started really uh, going back to the Eisenhower administration as when Brian ran through the, uh, the, the history of the gas tax. It was called uh, under Dwight Eisenhower the user pays principle. And it says if you are going to use the roads, you should pay that as a fee. The most direct way you can assign that is through uh, levying a gas tax on, on uh, internal combustion engine usage and, and fuel. And then that allowed the motorist who maybe doesn't drive as much, he's not, he's not required, he or she is not required to, to pay a gas tax uh, for the times he doesn't drive. He's only required to pay for the times he does. And so for the woman who uh, decides to drive more because of whatever various reasons are, she's paying more uh, into the system because she's using the system more. And that's a fair system. And that's actually a Republican principle uh, that was really started under Eisenhower and has been in place for, for many decades. Unfortunately, today, uh, you know, gas taxes have evolved into a, a hyper-partisan issue. I don't think that's necessarily good for society as a whole, but that's where we're at. And uh, hopefully, through successful implementation of SB1, we can show the voters that infrastructure should be a nonpartisan issue. It affects everyone and all Californians. And by providing accountability and, and transparency in how we spend the money, uh, hopefully we can, we can prove to the voters that this is good money, this is good government spending, and they get value. The taxpayer gets value back from their investment uh, that actually impacts their life on a daily basis. So, and there are groups that do oppose SB1, and I had mentioned that there's talk now about, I think there's two possibilities for uh, uh, initiatives right now to 
to be put on the ballot. But one of the organizations that does oppose SB1 is the Sacramento Taxpayers Association. So Katie, I wanted to, 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 to find out, you know, explain why, what is wrong with it? Um, and again, in broad brushstrokes, I know there's a lot. And what, what do you, um, the organizations would rather see as an alternative uh, to SB1. What are some other ways that you would consider uh, effective ways for funding transportation? Thank you. Um, consumption taxes are fine if that perhaps is uh, the majority of the taxes you're paying. But in California today, we are hit with taxes from absolutely every angle. High, we, we do still pay high property taxes, even with Proposition 13. Um, we have the highest, uh, we have high income taxes, the highest corporate taxes west of the Mississippi. Um, we already pay 63, almost 64 cents a gallon in federal, state, and local taxes on our gas. Now it's gonna go up 12 to 20 cents per gallon. These taxes hit the working, the middle class and the working families the hardest also because we're not just gonna be paying more per gallon every time we fill up our cars. Uh, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association has estimated this is gonna hurt families another $600 at least a year. But the truckers have already said, I'm not paying it, we're passing it right down to you. So we're gonna see our food costs go up, we're gonna see all kinds of uh, material costs go up, um, you know, Everything's going to be passed down to the consumer, and that is what we object to. The other thing that we have a, a, a pretty big problem with, and, and I know I'm speaking for the taxpayer associations up and down the state, they almost, I think almost all of them signed on to the opposition of this, is that the, the, the state pretty regularly borrows the funds from the transportation uh, the, the dedicated transportation funds. During the last recession, um, I think that a billion dollars a year was supposedly borrowed from transportation and never paid back. So the money that was supposed to be dedicated to doing the maintenance repairs and uh, you know, increasing our, our roads uh, is not there. And so predictably, they've, they've crumbled. We're still driving on Jerry Brown's two-lane Highway 5 since the 70s. Um, and yet we've doubled our population in this state. The other thing that we have a big concern with is um, Caltrans itself. Right now, they're already in the process of hiring 1,100 new employees ostensibly to do the work they're supposed to have been doing all along. So we've got massive government expansion going on again. Uh, Caltrans already has 19,000 employees. We're trying to figure out why they need another 1,100. So these are the costs that we concern ourselves with, and yet the legislature just continues to come back and hammer the taxpayers. Those are our biggest issues. As far as alternatives to increasing our taxes, um, we tend to prefer more free market solutions. We would like to see more outsourcing done. We would like to see bidding done on these jobs. Um, we would like to see the size of Caltrans shrunk significantly, especially since the legislative analyst and the auditor found that there are 3,500 employees that don't do anything at Caltrans. Um, so there's, there's a lot of government waste going on that we think should have been addressed prior to coming back to the taxpayer asking for more money from us. 
So Michael wants to respond to that, I, and I, I'm going to give you time, both of you, if you want to respond, and then we'll. I have specific questions about what you all covered, but Michael. Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I think that the the issue that Katie brought up about uh, borrowing of of taxpayer transportation money is very important, and that is something that uh, has occurred in the past. But that is something that was occurred in the past of over a decade ago, and it really uh, started during some of the budget troubles in the early 2000s, extended into the Schwarzenegger administration, um, and some of those uh, eras where we had very tight budgets and there was borrowing taking place. And I can tell you that, speaking from the behalf of the Alliance for Jobs, we have gone out of our way to close those loopholes where taxpayer dollars uh, have been dedicated or have been have been redirected from transportation and we have done several ballot initiatives that voters have approved perhaps some of the people in this room have voted for uh, including such things as as uh, prop 42 which protected the sales tax on gasoline from any legislative diversion uh, things like prop 22 which protected the local uh, highway user trust account money from any taxpayer from any uh, legislative diversion away from transportation uh, and then uh, essentially article 19 of the state constitution is a lockbox around 100 percent of the gas tax revenues as also voter approved a constitutional amendment uh, that prevented any additional uh, di diversion of transportation dollars. And then once you add in ACA 5, which as I mentioned earlier is the state constitutional amendment that'll be up for, for the voters in June of 2018, that will create a lockbox around all of the new SB1 money and that will be voted on and approved by the voters and I believe it will be approved because I think that these concepts are overwhelmingly popular and have been approved in the past by voters, and I think this one will be approved as well. That will be approved before the next budget is passed. So there will be no opportunity for the legislature to divert any of this money. In addition, on the previous dollars that have been diverted, SB1 actually repays those dollars back. And so it will make the taxpayer whole in terms of transportation investments and protect the money so that as we move forward, voters will can be assured that the dedication and protection of these dollars is exclusively for transportation and these projects will be delivered in every community across the state. So Katie, I'll let you respond and then I have some more specific questions after that. Um, as far as what are considered transportation projects, the legislative analyst broke the, uh, the, the $5.2 billion of this SB1 money down. Uh, $270 million will go to transit, intercity rail program, $44 million to commuter rail and in intercity rail, $100 million to bicycle and pedestrian projects, $108 million to parks and agriculture, and train and bus ridership is declining. So we kind of wonder if that's all considered transportation money, what, what about the roads? I, and I have a question actually, uh, Brian, about where the money goes specifically. What projects uh, are, is, are SB1 revenues earmarked for? Because I saw that there's like 50% uh, fixed local streets and transportation infrastructure, 50% state highways and transportation infrastructure. So where do you designate specific projects that are at the top of the list and down? How does that work? Well, SB1 uh, directs money to certain purposes and certain programs. And at the time SB1 passed, in some respects, we didn't have specific projects to tell you, but more and more as weeks go by, as months go by, specific projects are, are being identified. 
in the, uh, in the Sacramento area, for example, uh, one of the recent projects that Caltrans has accelerated due to SB1, and we're gonna pause for a second while a train goes by. I was mentioning the uh, uh, projects that have been identified so far in the Sacramento area, and these are all on a, a website that's tracking all the SB1 projects called rebuildingca.ca.gov. And the intent is every project we, we fund with SB1, we're gonna put on that website. And uh, as projects have been identified, they're, they're put up. Uh, in Sacramento, for example, uh, the Highway 50 uh, section between I-5 and Watt Avenue is now programmed for a repaving uh, fix. Uh, also, I-5 going south from Sacramento down to Consumnes River is being fixed. Uh, Katie had mentioned uh, bicycle projects, and actually uh, some of those are starting to get programmed as well because that's, that's a great way for people to commute in a healthy way if, if they have a shorter commute to make. Uh, one of the projects in uh, Sacramento is uh, uh, the uh, uh, going up to Sac State, I think along uh, River Park area, a new uh, four or five mile uh, 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 paved bikeway. So there's, there's some great projects and they're being uh, put on a website, they can be monitored, people can track uh, the amount of money, they can track when they're done. Uh, we have a, now an inspector general that SB1 added to make sure as a, there's a responsible individual that's somewhat independent that can uh, examine all these from an auditor perspective and report to the public on what's been uh, completed. Uh, so uh, the projects are very much uh, uh, being, being programmed uh, and will be starting construction and that's, that's really important for the accountability part of it. So I do certainly encourage people if they're interested, uh, it's, it's not a philosophical question on, on what uh, transportation uh, projects are, it's, it's a specific uh, project list and uh, I certainly encourage everyone to watch that in their communities as, those, uh, as the groundbreaking occurs and as those uh, projects get done. And I would, I would say, you know, the, the comment about Caltrans, at least three people said to me when I told them I wanted to do an event uh, talking about the gas tax, ask them why with Caltrans when you drive by there's always one guy, you know, doing the work and seven uh, wa uh, watching them. So that may be just, you know, the, the visual thing. But I think there is uh, that thought about Caltrans and, you know, the a lot of people and what do they actually do. What this ties into, I guess, is my question about the milestone set. Because within a decade, by t 2027, 98% of state highway pavement should be in good and fair condition. And at least 500 bridges must be fixed. So making sure those goals are met, you know, is Caltrans... Uh, do you have a plan in place so that it will be met, Caltrans is on board? And I guess also, do you use public, or not, sorry, private contractors? So Caltrans works with um, uh, outside contractors to get that done to make sure they're on track. How, how will that work? Sure, well, transportation is very much a, a public-private partnership, but, you know, really regardless of the, the project type. So uh, Caltrans employees uh, are 
responsible for many parts of project development. Uh, they go through the, the design to make sure the project's safe, work with the community to hear input on how the project's designed. Um, some of that work is performed by private contractors. We bring in uh, engineer staff to, to aid the department. Uh, but ultimately, when you go to construct a significant new project, it is the private sector that uh, and their employees that are out there that are uh, doing the repaving work, uh, building the new bridges, uh, uh, all the, the type of work in that area. I'm going to, uh, I, of course I have lots of questions, but I want to hear from, from you all, I think we all do, what questions you have. I've just known from past panels, everyone has great questions that I didn't even think about. So please don't be shy. Uh, the first one who gets up to ask a question uh, gets a special prize, by the way. So if that motivates you, it's a good one too. But while you're considering what question you want to ask, uh, I wanted to ask about other states that may we may use as models currently, like SB1 looked at, or, or maybe in terms of opposition, what would be good states um, that we should model our, our future transportation plans uh, uh, under? Because I know with the gas tax, now we are the second, we have the second highest taxes on gas and uh, I guess Pennsylvania is number one. So my question is, are there states that you have looked at as um, models when SB1 was done or states that you look at as SB1, uh, these states are using things that we should consider uh, as an alternative? Who would like to start? Michael. I can uh, take a stab at that. So uh, in, in the last couple of years, 26 states have uh, passed a gas tax increase. And in part, that is because of the lack of action at the federal level, uh, where you know, the federal gas tax has remained stagnant since 1993. And states have been told by the Republican Congress uh, repeatedly that they need to take the lead in dealing with their own infrastructure. And uh, so 26 states have done that, including uh, uh, deep red states such as North Carolina, South Carolina, Utah, uh, Indiana, you know, Mike Pence's hometown. These are these are places where, uh, you know, taxes are a bad word, yet they are acting with Republican governors and Republican legislatures to move the move the needle and, and, and ultimately communicate to voters the value of investing in the transportation infrastructure of that state, both in the economic and a quality of life sense. And so I think you see the fact that more and more states are taking the lead on this um, in, in part because of the lack of response from the federal government, which is part of what makes the fact that uh, some of our Republican congressional delegation wants to repeal California's SB1, uh, even though they've done and what exactly what they've asked in terms of taking the lead at the state and local level and making investments specific to that state and, and not creating uh, the need to raise the federal gas tax. Yet it's also been shown that in the last week, uh, Gary Cohn, uh, President Trump's director of the White House Economic Council, uh, has been floating the idea to raise the federal gas tax by seven cents. So there's obviously a need even at the federal level to continue uh, to create some more solvency for the Federal Highway Trust Fund and create some more revenue for states. Even though we've had a majority of states now take action, there's still discussion amongst Republicans at the federal level about doing this. And then it is in part because of the value to the economy and the value to the motorist. 
Katie. I think it's important not to conflate right-to-work states with California. Um, a lot of the red states that are doing all this amazing road work and passing gas taxes um, are also doing it without hefty union wages. And I bring this up because California has the nation's second highest road maintenance cost per mile at nearly $103,000 per mile. Um, so again, nobody I think in this state would disagree that we have roads that need a lot of work, but at what cost, I think is what we continue to say. Um, and, and the reason that this cost is so high is because we have such a union dominance in this state and they are very, very demanding of their employers, including the state agencies, and that drives the cost of uh, uh, wages up. They demand very, very high wages for their employees um, and projects to keep them busy. Um, and more employees to be hired. And this is what drives this cost up. So, yeah, I think it's great that all these states are fixing their roads, and I'm very excited California will also. But again, we always ask, at what cost? And we are paying way too much. If I could just respond to that, I, I think that's um, not exactly true. Because the federal government has something called Davis-Bacon, which requires prevailing wage on public works projects that are funded through the federal gas tax and highway trust fund, uh, not unlike California. So even in these states that are receiving federal gas tax, there's still Davis-Bacon rules and prevailing wage still applies. And most of us who are in the private sector of the union construction industry are not asking for uh, carve-outs for union wages. Uh, we are willing to compete on open market, and it's no way is, is being, uh, are we getting subsidized by the federal taxpayer or the state taxpayer or the local taxpayer. Uh, we are competitive in the open market. I think what's really driving down the cost and what's really creating a structural imbalance in transportation funding is a couple of other factors that were not mentioned. Obviously, construction costs are going up, but that is related to world demand for concrete. And China, Asia, uh, India, you know, Africa, these are many places in the world that are underdeveloped that are having huge structural demands for uh, the, the, the raw natural resources that we have historically used uh, at, a, at a rate where we weren't competitive with anyone else. We didn't have to worry about the price costs. So that's driving up costs. Another factor that's in play that I think was not addressed has to do with the increased fuel economy of everyone's vehicle. And we all have been driving cars as they get more modern, we get better miles to the gallon. Well, our usage and maintenance has not gone down. In fact, our vehicle's miles traveled has gone up over the last decade. At the same time, our fuel economy has gone down tremendously. So we've created a system where the revenue is going down, but the usage and maintenance cost is going up. And that delta, that difference between uh, the costs and, and the need is, is increasing over time. And so that's why you're seeing Republicans recognize that they need to do something, because these are structural things that no state, not even the federal government can necessarily change. These are structural economic issues that are creating an imbalance in how we've historically funded our transportation network. And uh, SB1 does great things for California to help correct that and deliver on, on positive uh, developments and in, in new infrastructure for California motorists. All right, I, I have more questions. Again, free drink for anyone who comes up to the mic and asks a question. All right, 
after the panel's over, you. I have two questions. Okay, two questions. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you all for being here. You know, we're outside of normal, normal business hours, and and I appreciate that all of you have taken the time to, uh, to do this on a, at a you know a, what everybody's busy all the time. I'm a I'm a commuter cyclist, and and I'll I'll disclose I'm a board member of Sacramento Area Bicycle Advocates. Brian, can you tell us about about what's in SB one for cycling and pedestrian projects and how you see that playing out? Sure. Uh, well, you know the uh, the money in SB one really follows up on a, a program that we started earlier in the in the Governor Brown's administration that. For a while, there were several small programs to fund bicycling in the state. We had a we had a, uh, a bicycle transportation account, but it, it was small. It was under the radar. There wasn't a lot of public discussion. There wasn't a lot of stakeholder involvement. And so, what we created in uh, 2013 was something called the Active Transportation Program that consolidated and grew some of these programs. And uh, that now is done very publicly through the California Transportation Commission. We've had a lot of successful projects around the state to increase uh, safety for kids going to school, try to encourage kids to bike and walk to school, reduce the, the parent drop-offs and the congestion that causes. Uh, and with SB1, uh, we had the opportunity to grow that further. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, with uh, some recent action that's occurred, the, uh, the bicycle project's actually been one of the first out the door to, uh, to get SB1 funding. And uh, has several projects in Sacramento, one in, in Davis uh, around a, a school there. Uh, so uh, there's really an opportunity to, to invest in, in uh, a bike and, uh, and walking facilities in a way that uh, grows that ridership. A, a lot of the... Uh, the growth is coming not so much in every case from additional miles of facilities, but safer facilities, uh, putting up uh, uh, separated bikeways with curbs or barriers that make people feel it's safe for their kids to use, it, it's safer for them to use. And uh, that, that bike component is not going to certainly uh, uh, be the way everyone makes every trip. Uh, but, uh, you know, where it makes sense, I, I think that's something that absolutely is transportation-related, appropriate transportation investment, and, and something that's going to uh, uh, really help, help our, uh, our neighborhoods and our economy uh, uh, deliver a, a segment of, of uh, the transportation we need. Thank you, Brian. Katie, you, you called out the, the bike and pedestrian uh, Commitment in SB1 in your opening remarks, which I which I interpreted as a concern on your part that it's that it might not be appropriate to pay for those projects with the gas tax. Is there is there a, a different way that you would propose that we provide these uh, these parts of our infrastructure, or that we or or are you saying we should not provide those? I didn't mean it to sound like I was calling it out. I just was pointing out the cost breakdown of SB1. Okay. So no, I don't have any other suggestions for bike okay. transportation. Yeah. I, and, and indeed, get that that's a challenge. You know, yeah. My bike doesn't pay gas tax. I do pay gas tax. I own and drive cars. We have actually have more cars than drivers at our house. So <laughs> thanks very much for, for being here and for your comments tonight. And Amber will serve you your free drink. It's on my tab. So thank you very much.
Um, and I had, to, I had a question about that, I guess, the, the, the quote unquote future of transportation question. Um, because there is the point of view that SB1 doesn't do enough to relieve traffic congestion or increase highway capacity. And then there's a, I guess, a, a, a point of view that runs alongside that, that California needs to focus more on efficient methods of transit, like improving public transit, uh, bike lanes, high-speed rail, obviously, is, uh, uh, Jerry Brown is looking at that. What do you all see as the future transportation to be? I mean, what should we be focusing on in terms of, I guess, the ratio of um, roads versus public transit versus getting high-speed rail as, a, as, a, as a something that we should be considering? What, what, Brian, why don't you start? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot going on with technology that's, in my view, very going to be very impactful over time to transportation. Uh, it's really the, the com uh, computing and data issues would, uh, which are allowing, uh, you know, in some uh, future date, autonomous vehicles to operate on a road. Uh, the ride sharing and the apps, Uber and Lyft, I think that's very impactful as well. You know, that's something that uh, has some potential. If you're ever driving down the highway and it's congested, you know, look at those other cars next to you or maybe in your own car, you know. How many excess, excess seats are there in those vehicles that are unused? And, you know, how many of those can be filled up? So I think some of this, this new technology uh, with Uber and Lyft rideshare, uh, it has a potential to really to be uh, to be helpful uh, to uh, increase capacity of our existing highways uh, to fill up more seats in cars and I think also to grow transit to make transit more convenient when I uh, travel to different cities I always try to get on a, a bus or train and see how it works there and uh, with, with Google and other uh, data services it, it's much easier to find out when the next bus is coming now and it's easier to buy a ticket in many cases to get on that bus. So, uh, you know, all these all these things are important. I, we we still need investment in the in the concrete and the steel uh, side of things too, uh, where in some areas you need another lane on a highway because that's the that's the the constraint that's uh, slowing everyone down. In other cases, uh, adding another uh, uh, train to a, a train service in that quarter might be the, the best approach. So, you know, I think different communities are going to take different approaches, but that, uh, that idea that uh, some of this money should go to relieve congestion for people getting where they need to go, uh, for freight as we need to move goods around the state and, and grow the freight business, uh, those were recognized early on as really essential parts of, of this package and, and they're in there with some significant investments. Katie or Michael, any comments on what you see in terms of, you know, I guess high-speed rail, is that viable? Is, uh, should we be looking more at Uber and, and Lyft ride-sharing? Um, and maybe it depends on what part of the state you live in, right? SoCal has a different point of view than the Bay Area. So what are your thoughts on that? Katie. Um, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but um, the high-speed rail <laughs> system, Boy, what a pipe dream that is. Um, a lot of people are very concerned that some of this SB1 money is going to be diverted into that. And right now it's looking like it's $245 million per mile to build. That's a problem, money we don't have. Um, there are, there are some, uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle who are saying we really need to put that thing on hold and perhaps just focus on the roads the bridges, the infrastructure that needs repairs. Um, I could go on and on about high-speed rail, but I'll, I won't. 
And I guess all I'll say about High Speed Rail is not one penny of SB1 money will be used to fund the High Speed Rail project. And that's because of the voter approved uh, Prop 1A bond from 2006 that has language in it that says no state subsidy nor state dollars shall be used outside of the voter approved bond. And that is, is something that, we, again, we created a voter lockbox around, and uh, that is, is something that the voters put on the ballot and uh, approved, and we need to recognize that High Speed Rail and SB1 are separate programs. Brian. Yeah, and I might just add, as I, I'm fortunate to say, High Speed Rail is part of our agency, and we're, we're proud to have it. Um, it's, uh, I, I think one thing to mention as we think about high-speed rail is really the magnitude of, of the effort we're, we're doing here. And, you know, I, I like to think about alternatives to high-speed rail because we're having, we're going to have great growth in population over the next uh, uh, 20, 30 years in the state of California. And we're going to have need for uh, additional options for traveling between our great cities. And, uh, you know, if, if you think uh, high-speed rail has its challenges, I'd, I'd hate to uh, embark on building a new six-lane highway between San Francisco and L.A., for example, or thinking about adding new uh, runway capacity at uh, San Francisco International or Oakland or some of these other major airports. So it's, it's something that we, we know will work well. We, we can look to other countries to see how well it works in Asia and Europe. But I don't even uh, need to look that far because we look across uh, the United States to the uh, Northeast Corridor and the, the Amtrak service they have there that's faster rail. I want to call it high speed, but it's definitely faster rail uh, that goes up to 150 miles. And that mode uh, between uh, Boston and New York or New York and, and uh, Washington, D.C. covers most of those trips. It's, uh, you know, in some cases, 60 percent of the travelers making those uh, those trips take the Acela because it's it's the cheapest way to go, it's the fastest way to go, it's the most convenient way to go, and uh, you know that's something that uh, California can benefit from as well. So I just I had three more questions. So again, I guess this would be last call for questions from from the audience. But uh, speaking about the the rail, it was interesting reading up on how SB1 was passed. Uh, obviously, Jerry Brown was very vocal about uh, getting this through, and and um, it sounded like there was a lot of deal-making with uh, legislators in terms of uh, getting it done, side deals, and the, the, the number of one billion is, I read a lot about, one billion worth of side deals were needed to get the votes to pass. But it did pass, but it sounded like it barely passed. So my question about that is the process needed to get um, SB1 passed. Is that just, I don't know how to explain it, but is that what is just you need to do to get things done? You know, you, you have to make deals. These deals sounded like um, a lot of them were transit focused, like I guess there was a Republican Senator, Anthony Canella, who voted, the lone Republican who voted for SB1, uh, but there was a deal where a rail would be coming through his district, Central Valley District. Um, so is this something that just has to be done to get things done? Are these deals ultimately gonna pay off in terms of better transit for everyone? Michael. I, I think that for a long time, uh, you had a system in Congress where earmarks were part of every transportation package, and those earmarks were going to invest in in uh, different districts as a way to earn votes. 
And uh, after 2010, uh, you know, we had Tea Party revolution and, and Congress change, and the earmarks were eventually abandoned. And, you know, and let me just speak in defense of earmarks for one moment. A lot of what happened in earmarks was getting uh, resources allocated towards more rural Republican districts that would normally be divested in or not, not given enough money towards. And so that's part of the reason you were able to get uh, some of these legislators from areas who are not in the urban cores of, of California is because they were getting, uh, to a degree, a disproportionate investment, but also because of the fact they had such great needs. And that given a, a normal formulaic on a population-based process, those needs are not going to be met in some of the more rural and Republican areas. And so part of what happened in the SB1 deal was, was allocating some of these resources that we're creating into the areas where the need is the greatest. And that is why those legislators ultimately voted for it, because they recognized uh, overwhelmingly that there was so much transportation investment need, they could not generate the revenue given the, the high amount of lane miles and the low density of population on their own to fund these major projects, yet these major projects will have major uh, transformative uh, uh, impacts on those people's lives who live in those districts. And so that's part of the reason that uh, the SB1 deal had some, some carve-outs. And I think it's worth noting that those carve-outs, they're not for Los Angeles County, they're not for the San Francisco Peninsula, they're not in the, the wealthy urban cores, they are in the peripheral areas. And that's part of the reason we're able to build a broad uh, two-thirds consensus on the uh, SB1 package. Audience question? Yeah, hi, thank you guys for coming out. I know a lot of the talk about SB1 is road repairs for current capacity, but we want to talk about expanded capacity and I've sat in meetings that talk about the congested corridors or the freight areas. Can you guys speak to what parts of SB1 are available to expand transit and transportation infrastructure? Sure. Um, Brian. Sure. Um, you can jump in again if I'm not covering your, your, your key topic here, but uh, uh, there's many, uh, it, it's certainly a diverse state as, as Michael just alluded to. Um, different parts of the state have different strategies. Uh, I, I believe one of the reasons you see multiple programs in SB1 is to make sure that these different parts of the states with different needs all have a path to get some of their needs fulfilled. And so, you know, you have uh, several transit programs in, in the package and uh, many urban or areas of the state, perhaps the, the coastal areas, uh, you know, they will take advantage of that and uh, we'll be expanding uh, uh, BART, uh, perhaps expanding Metrolink in Southern California. Uh, there's many projects uh, th like that around the state. At the same time, there's other areas of the state, maybe more the, the inland areas, where they're saying, look, we have a less mature highway system. And <laughs> for us, you know, we, we need to add some, some highway lanes. And so there's, there's opportunities through the, the congested corridors uh, program, uh, some of the freight money. Uh, there's uh, another program 
program that's a cooperative program with local governments that go out and raise local funds. And it's, it's the state local partnership program, and it's an incentive uh, program where some of those, those dollars can match the local money and be leveraged to, to do larger projects, be they uh, the highway, the rail, uh, the other projects. So there's a lot of flexibility across the SB1 programs to uh, address community needs of many types and to uh, 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 pull some funding together uh, through various programs to address the needs. Katie. I actually understood that it wasn't going to do anything to add lanes to our roads in the state. Um, and, and that list I gave you, that breakdown, uh, it's go 270 million to transit and inner city rail programs, 44 million to computer rail and inner city rail, 100 million to bicycle and pedestrian, 108 million to parks and agriculture. I'm not hearing any expansion of our highways. You could argue that a commuter rail takes cars off the road and creates more capacity for the rest of the motorists. I will ask a question then. How does that help the working poor guy who has two or three jobs and needs his car to get to all of them? And in fact, this question was asked of uh, Senate President Pro Tem Kevin DeLeon, and because the, the question was along the lines of some of these people are living so closely on the edge, they're not going to be able to afford this additional tax, possibly. And the answer was, well, we just need to beef up public transit. Well, if I could, if I could answer the uh, or, or respond to the, the comment about uh, eligibility of highways, uh, there is a, a program or a, within SB1 called the Solutions for Congested Corridor Program, and that actually, uh, somewhat uniquely to this this type of legislation, cites some specific corridors and specific projects. Uh, uh, one of them, in, in, I might note, in the Bay Area is the uh, uh, Highway 101 corridor that links Silicon Valley to San Francisco. And that's in that area, they're looking at multiple ways to address that very severe congestion. Uh, and it includes uh, their electrification of the Caltrain rail system. It includes looking at a new, uh, adding a lane in both directions to Highway 101. Uh, right now, they're looking at a uh, express lane uh, that really takes the advantage of an HOV lane where uh, uh, carpools, uh, uh, cars can use it at a free or at a discount, but also if there's still capacity in that type of lane, you can uh, offer it for a toll to people that were willing to pay that toll. So that's a way to really get a lot of uh, uh, efficiency out of that investment of a new lane, which is very expensive in a big urban area. But in fact, there are avenues in SB1 to, to add lanes, to invest on our, on our highways to ease uh, congestion commutes. Okay, next question from the audience. Hi there. Um, I'd like to address this question to Katie. Full disclosure, I'm from Orange County. So um, by all uh, historical measures, I, I should be firmly in your camp. Um, <laughs> Orange County is kind of the uh, Roseville of the South, in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm also a business owner. Um, I, by virtue of how much tax I pay, I'm, I'm part of your constituents. Um, but I, I got to work for a, a good stretch of time in LA commuting, and my commute doubled in a five-year period. I was wasting 
it started out 45 minutes and ended up being an hour and a half to get to my job. And the amount of time and productivity and, and gas cost, as well as the air pollution that it contributed, it was, it was a no-win. And, and that contributed to, as I moved here and I, and I became familiar with other means of transportation, um, I realized that we can't just build our roads in order to accommodate our growing population. Yes, we need to keep up our roads. Yes, we do need to expand them, but we need to also expand our options. We need to look at how can we get more people to drive, how, how can we get more people to ride their bikes, to walk, to take light rail, to take high-speed rail, to anything that's not going to just add people onto the highways, because we've all seen what happens when everyone jumps on the highway at the same time. So here I am, a taxpayer, um, an above-average taxpayer, and I don't want to have to pay for it, but I don't know who else is going to pay for it, and I pay for it every day that I sit in traffic. I own a business, and for every 5, 10, 15 minutes, I'm stuck in traffic instead of being able to be in my seat at my office running my business, making a profit. It's costing me money. For every 15 minutes that my staff is late because of congestion, it costs me money. So how, who's going to pay for it? I hear you say you don't want to have to pay a living wage to the workers that build the roads, but you also don't think it's fair to the people who can't make a living wage because they're stuck in low-end jobs. So it seems like you just want somebody else to pay for it. So I, I just want to know who else is going to pay for it. Well, if you're from Orange County, you probably lived there during the bankruptcy, right? No, I moved here 22 years ago. Okay, well, Orange County was in bankruptcy, and we have a state senator in the legislature right now who is the only CPA in the legislature who helped bring them out of that bankruptcy. Um, we won't go into that too much. What I'm talking about are government efficiencies. If we get just the one state agency, Caltrans, under much more efficiency, um, there, and there are many, many ways to do it, that alone would pay for the road repairs we need. I'm not saying no road repairs at all. And I'm not saying I don't think people should have prevailing wages at all. That's not at all what I said. But what we're, what taxpayer associations up and down the state are very concerned about, including the one in Orange County, is the cost to do this, the cost to the average taxpayer and the average family. And that is what's not being addressed. We're not saying don't do stuff. Uh, but we're saying it's got to be done more efficiently with actual uh, cost constraints in mind also. Does that mean more private-public partnerships? Some of that, yeah. With some, yeah. I mean, when you, when you look at, say, uh, the, the, the road repairs that were done immediately after uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake, they brought in uh, a, an amazing contractor who was able to do it you know, under budget within a a short amount of time, I mean, I know that was kind of unusual, but you know, more public-private partnerships, um, more bid, more, more work to be bid out, competitive bids. We, we love the idea of people working, and we really don't care if they're union or non-union, but it's just got to be done efficiently and in budgets, and, and our concern is that Caltrans doesn't send uh, many competitive bids out. So Brian and Michael, in terms of the efficiency and, you know, government has typically this uh, 
perception of, you know, not being super efficient, not being very startup, but will SB1, you know, you had talked about the accountability. Are there, you know, initiatives to get things done in a more efficient manner that we haven't discussed yet or you want to go into a little more detail about? Who wants to start? Well, I'll, sure. I'll, let's do I'll, Brian first. Sure. Well, I, the, uh, I can say during, during this administration, we've been very uh, focused on efficiency. We've actually, as the resources for uh, Caltrans have fallen over the years with, with revenues declining. Uh, every year we've reduced staff at the department. We've reduced the, the engineers we have in our budget. Um, the other thing to, to note is, we, we, as I mentioned before, we do, uh, the department hires engineers from private contractors to help design the projects. And, uh, you know, that cost of those actually doesn't turn out to be cheaper uh, than the state employees. So uh, that's one thing to think about in the design part of it. But I, I do think there is some common ground with, with Katie on, on some of this uh, contracting efficiency, and we have been working on that. So there's a lot of, uh, there's some efficiencies to be had when you go from the design of the project to the construction of the project. And one of the ways you try to achieve those efficiencies is working with those people that are actually doing the, the building part of it. Try to incorporate them into the design phase of it because sometimes they can say, if you, if you change this design a bit here, if you change the design there, we can give you a more uh, efficient, a quicker construction cycle, or we can do it without having to shut down as many lanes during construction. And uh, we've been adding uh, several methods to do that. One's uh, called the uh, contract manager, general contractor procurement method, where as we design the project, we bring in a private uh, const uh, construction company to help with the designs. And when we go to construct it, uh, we ask them if they're interested in that particular job. Uh, they have an option to bid bid on it. If, if uh, their bid's too high, uh, the department can go out and find another contractor. But it's it's one of those efficiencies that, that in what we've done so far seems to be working because, again, it's, it's a way to uh, look at uh, that transition from design to construction, uh, make some design improvements where they make sense to drive down those construction costs and the time of doing that. And so uh, th those are things that, that we have done and we continue to do. Michael, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. I, I will just add a two quick points, uh, as I know we're wrapping up now. Um, one is that we cannot create efficiencies in the amount that it needs to meet our backlog. Structurally not possible. Um, even if legislative analysts report uh, that talked about how there's roughly $500 million of of overhead that may or may not be necessary within Caltrans, even if we were to remove all of that and take the LAO report at its face value, that's still less than 10% of what SB1 brings in. So we are in no way uh, solving our problem. And then on the efficiency side, uh, you know, Katie mentioned, uh, you know, earthquake rebuilding and, you know, who are these private sector contractors? Uh, well, those contractors are on the board of directors of the Alliance for Jobs. Uh, C.C. Myers is a well-known contractor in, in the Sacramento area who has routinely delivered uh, under budget and ahead of schedule and then delivered on the value for the taxpayers. Well, C.C. Myers is, is now his company has evolved into uh, Myers & Sons and Myers & Sons on the board of directors of the Alliance. 
And we are completely aligned with his agenda in terms of, of making sure that taxpayer gets a maximum benefit and that we are turning out projects in the most efficient amount of time and getting that concrete poured and delivered and the road turned back over to the motorists as quickly as we can. That's, that's what our agenda is, is aligned with that agenda. And we think that is completely aligned with what the taxpayer wants because uh, it is the maximizing of the resources that they are putting into this system. And we're gonna continue to defend that money, protect that money, and make sure it's used and, and put on the street in the most efficient way possible. Okay, so the last two questions are looking forward into 2018. And in particular with the buzz lately that I've been reading about initiatives to be put on the ballot uh, that repeal the gas tax. I, I think there's two right now. So this is, I, I had earmarked this for to ask Katie, but I think anyone can, can jump in about what exactly uh, are the people who want to repeal, and I think the, the, the state's Republican Party is, is focused on this too. What are the, uh, this discussion right now about the, the thing that would happen, that the initiatives that would go on the ballot uh, because there's two right now, but what's, what are they talking about doing? Uh, I think there's a talk about an amendment. One is an amendment, one is not. What are the specifics? Katie, would you like to? Yeah, I will. Um, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association just announced yesterday, and I'm gonna have to read it because it's so new, um, that they are backing a ballot measure that will repeal the $5.2 billion in annual gas and car tax increases and um, and requires all future increases be approved by voters, probably similar to Prop 13. Um, and then Assemblyman Travis Allen is also, he's got a proposed ballot initiative just to repeal Senate Bill 1. I don't think it's got any constitutional amendment involved. Um, those are the ones I'm familiar with. Yeah, because the one that I hear about that is connected to a uh, putting an amendment in the Constitution is uh, being introduced by a, I think a city councilman down in San Diego, Carl DeMaio, okay. Yeah, so that's Carl DeMaio, yeah. Radio talk show host. Correct, okay. and he's, I think he's a former city councilman former or something. City council member. okay. Um, I think he's also behind the effort to recall uh, Senator Josh Newman, who was um, a vote on Senate Bill 1 in a, in a vulnerable district. And I, I should just mention today I was at a, uh, a uh, luncheon where they had the heads of the state Republican Party, the state Democrat Party. I was mentioning to the panelists the questions that were asked were all about the gas tax and about sexual harassment, which will be another policy in a pie in 2018. But one person mentioned to me when I was putting this panel together, uh, it seems like uh, he said uh, the, the, the state Republican Party thinks it has a good chance of getting one of these initiatives, whichever one, if any of them land on the ballot, to pass because there will be a lot of dissatisfaction about uh, the gas tax once it starts hitting people's pockets. So that's one opinion. Um, I guess my last question then would be for you all, if there is an initiative on the ballot and we all as voters uh, go on election day and are faced with whether to repeal or not, uh, make it part of the Constitution or not, what would you have us as voters think about in this year between the gas tax kicking in and, and the day where we may decide whether to vote it off? What should we consider uh, if we're faced with that decision? Uh, I'll start with you, Michael. Well, thank you. I, I think that uh one of the most important things, as we talked about, is that 
no matter what happens in, with repeal, if they're able to qualify or not, uh, which is, remains to be seen, the voters will be voting on a constitutional amendment to protect the money and dedicate it exclusively to transportation in June. So when, by the time this question is posed to the voters, uh, the voters will already have decided, do we create a lockbox around these new dollars? So then the, really the question is, do we not fix the roads? Or do we move forward with fixing them? And I think that's not what's that's not being talked about right now in the context of today's politics. But fast forward 12 months to November of 18. And that's the situation we're in. And that's the question posed to voters. Do we move forward or do we not? And one of the things that everyone needs to recognize is that these are fixed costs that only go become more expensive the longer we delay. And if we don't address them now, we will have to address them in the future. And these are, these are empirical engineering-based numbers, but it costs eight times more to replace a road than it does to maintain it. So if we allow these roads to deteriorate past the point which they can be repaired at a, at a surface level and have to be then completely torn up and replaced, is that a good service for the taxpayers in the long run? Or are we deferring these costs of our today's infrastructure honor our children, and should, wouldn't it be making more sense that we pay for our usage now and don't push those costs on the future generations? Thank you. Katie. Well, I sort of agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough question because um, we're already putting massive costs on the back of future generations. And I think what the voters are going to do is take a look at, as I mentioned earlier, how many places the voters are getting hit and getting taxed and getting feed to death and getting regulated. And um, yes, we know we need roads repaired, but perhaps if this is repealed, the state government would have to take a little closer look inside and clean up its own messy house first. Brian, last word. Well, uh, again, I would get a plug-in for the website, uh, rebuildingca.ca.gov. That's the place to look to see what projects have been uh, programmed so far with this SB1 money. There's uh, across the state uh, right now over $5 billion of, of highway projects that, that are on that list. It's going to be a lot of projects uh, this coming spring that will be added to that through these competitive programs that are uh, trying to reduce congestion and, and uh, transformative uh, transit and rail projects, etc. There will be a lot of information, and, and increasingly so, on, on the value of SB1. So, you know, I, I think that's maybe the, the thing to think about it. Uh, it. Should voters end up going to the polls in uh, November 2018 to, to question the benefit of SB1, they're going to have a lot of data on projects in their communities, in their local roads, uh, uh, on the highways, on the, the rail systems they use. And, uh, you know, I think they're going to see a lot of value in, in those projects going forward. And, and, and uh, without SB1, I don't, I don't think they do go forward. You know, there's, there's really, uh, there's no alternative set up to uh, provide any kind of alternative to SB1. Well, it's interesting. This is day one of what could be a conversation that goes on through Election Day. We'll just see what happens. But uh, I think it's, this is definitely a very interesting discussion and uh, I want to say thank you very much for coming and explaining it to us um, and appreciate you guys coming out and and talking so thanks again you've been listening to California groundbreakers 
Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on November 1st, 2017 at Station One in West Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists, Brian Annis, Katie Grimes, and Michael Quigley for doing a great job explaining the gas tax and breaking it down in plain English. Thanks also to Darar Sawaya and Sandeep Dahal from Station One for hosting the event. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. 